Is Alvin here? Yep, I'm here. No, no, but is he like... They don't hear me. I'm not hearing anything. This is literally like listening to the weeds. Hello and welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Sarah Cliff. I'm here as usual with my co-host Ezra Klein. Matt Iglesias is somewhere in, in Maine on vacation in the in the land of Susan Collins. I've grown so used to hearing Matt say, hello, welcome to The Weeds. <laughs> it was. It felt a little odd to do it. But, you know, we, we have to soldier on without Matt. You and, did a great job. Thank you. And we have um, one of our really brilliant colleagues, Alvin Chang, is here with us, who you might recognize from his fantastic visual explainers on Vox, which get into a lot of weedsy issues about integration and the history of um, homeownership policy. And we wanted to bring him on because he had this really fantastic piece last week about segregation in schools and how school segregation has quietly come back into our education system. So we'll talk about a few other topics later. We are going to get into the... um, I don't know, it's clusterfuck, the technical term of what is happening at the White House right now. I think the White House is undergoing an evolution. Ah, all right. Staffing changes. All right, thank you. It's all going great. Thank you, Spokesperson Klein. And um, we have, since everyone really enjoyed our last white paper uh, about weed on the weeds, um, we have another about marijuana taxation in Washington State, which is possibly the most weedsy white paper. And vertical integration, and vertical integration of the industry. And the Laffer Curve. And it's it's fantastic. But anyways, Alvin, welcome. We are so excited to have you here. Yeah, it's really great to be here it's an, and actually be able to respond to the things you guys say. <laughs> Instead of just screaming at the, the car radio. Can, can yep, I exactly. ask you to um, just start by setting the, the table here a bit? What are the overall numbers on school segregation? What 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 is the overview of the issue look like right now? So school segregation is is getting worse. In the past, you know, three decades or so, segregation has actually kind of uh, started to creep back into our education system, and in ways that that uh, didn't exist shortly after Brown v. Board integrated schools. What's really interesting is the ways that we're seeing segregation creep back in are entirely predictable. We, we knew this would happen. In fact, uh, several Supreme Court justices said exactly what would happen, and we just ha- kind of let it happen. I think a lot of us know about Brown versus the Board of Education and what that decision meant. But then you write about this other Supreme Court decision that seems to have a lot less name recognition. I honestly had not heard of it until I read your piece, but it seems to be influential. But like, walk us through the role of the Supreme Court and like what is what is allowed and how that's kind of played into some of the trends you're talking about. Yeah. So in the 1970s, uh, Detroit had this effort to integrate schools. So four out of the six Detroit school board members voted for this plan to uh, bus white students within the Detroit school district to uh, predominantly black neighborhoods and vice versa. And you know, Detroit is a historically segregated city. There was literally a wall that separated a black community from a white community in order for uh, the Federal Housing Administration to back a loan for that white community. There was a, a huge racial history Wait, I'm in sorry. Detroit. I'm going to stop you here. Can you just explain oh, that for another minute? So th- there was a wall built in order to qualify for federal loans, a big, beautiful wall. 
Uh, actually, I mean, it's Sorry. not so beautiful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in, the, in I believe, uh, around 1940, there was a developer who wanted to uh, build a development in Detroit uh, and get loans backed by the federal government. But the federal government uh, has in one of their handbooks for, uh, you know, telling people how to grant or allow loans to be backed or not. One of the kind of things written in that handbook was black people are a, a risk, essentially. So in order for this developer to actually be able to build the neighborhood and get white people in there, he had to build a wall that separates his neighborhood from a black neighborhood. And then the Fed said, OK, that's, to basically that's like good. make the case this is safe. Like we have a wall. There won't be riffraff and riffraff is basically code for African-American at that point that, that you're trying to argue this is a safe place because we have this wall, which is pretty. Yep. Horrific. If you read like any of Alvin's work, I had the pleasure of editing Alvin for a while. You really realize like the horrendous racial history of our housing policies. And like that really ties into, I think, a lot of what's going on in the in the piece you're writing about school segregation, too. Well, this is one of the these pieces of the issue that I, I always think it's underplayed in the way we talk about current outcomes and gaps in in, in racial outcomes. When you have these conversations, people often seem to have this view that we we, we had slavery, and then we had this terrible sort of era of reconstruction and state-sponsored terror, and then we had segregation. But, you know, roughly 1965, it all ended. And since then, it's all been fine. And anything, any gaps that have not been made up or have not closed, that you can now say is that's race neutral, right? That That's just now saying something about the people or saying something about the culture or saying something about something. But it's not our fault anymore. We've done, we, America, have done our part. Uh, and one of the things that you really find when you dig into this a little bit is how much we have continued in the post-segregation era to both subtly and not subtly stack the deck and continue to advantage some groups over others, particularly whites over over non-whites. And a lot of it comes out, but we're now now because it's a little bit more hidden, we blame people for the outcomes, right? We say this was your fault even as uh, a huge amount of policy went into making it so. Yeah, we don't ascribe it to uh, racist motives, even though when you kind of delve back and see the evolution of how we got here, there it, it does, we do see kind of this invisible blueprint, kind of ridges and canyons in our geography of why people live where they do, why people have certain disadvantages. And it's, it's uh, especially prominent here because when you go back to Detroit, there was... Uh, the school district had a choice of where to draw their school district kind of catchment zones. And they could have drawn a line kind of going north to south, which would have allowed more integration to happen. And of course, they didn't. They, they drew the line east to west and it kind of, you know, split the black communities and the white communities, which, by the way, existed in that way because of housing discrimination. It just kind of split them exactly along racial lines. And then you had this hyper segregation by the time we uh, we got to this kind of integration plan uh, that the school board voted on and as expected, it caused like such a huge amount of outrage. Like there was literally a recall election that recalled like the four Detroit board members who voted for this plan. And in fact, like the Michigan state legislator even jumped in and blocked the plan. And it took a federal judge to actually be like, actually, guys, you can't do that. So that's what allowed the plan to go forward. And what would this plan have done? So this plan would have taken white students in predominantly white high schools and bused them to predominantly black high schools and vice versa. Uh, 
uh, a lot like many of the busing uh, busing plans that exist, I guess, nowadays in certain cities. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, from your explainer, that's interesting to me was this included the Detroit suburbs at this point because you had seen such white flight out of Detroit, you couldn't actually integrate Detroit. There was like no one left to integrate. If, I, if I'm understanding your explainer right, that they actually start reaching out to the suburbs because that's the only way you could even do any sort of racial integration. Yeah, well, one of so one of the problems that the federal judge and the NAACP and a whole bunch of white activists kind of recognized was when you start busing students from one place to another, especially white students into black neighborhoods, it's going to kind of trigger more white flight. It's going to cause a whole bunch of white people to go into the suburbs, uh, which we'll get into kind of later of why that pathway exists. But that's why the federal judge allowed the integration order to include these suburban communities. So ultimately, the integration plan was we will bus students from in Detroit out to the suburbs to predominantly white suburbs and bus white suburban kids into Detroit to actually cause or actually kind of uh, do kind of meaningful integration. And then what happens in the Supreme Court? Like, and how does this kind of spill out into how school districts work today? Yeah, so this is the Supreme Court says, okay, yeah, uh, Detroit is responsible for causing this massive amount of segregation. But then they go on and say, you can't involve those suburbs in integrating, you you have to just integrate within Detroit. And so it, it doesn't sound terrible on the surface. It doesn't, you know, because, you know, why should the suburbs be involved in this integration plan? But what it ultimately does is it, is it allows people who don't want to be around poor black kids to just put a municipal border between them. So either going right across the border to another suburb or even creating your own small little town or your own small little school district and so it, it creates this like extremely powerful tool for segregation to happen. And you have a really fascinating chart in the in the piece that shows what you would have expected to see in terms of white families moving out uh, of a particular area or particular school district and what you actually did see in the aftermath of these kinds of, of, of orders. That struck me as very powerful evidence that these orders were creating a, a very clear white flight. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question that white flight was triggered by desegregation plans. One of the things that's really underappreciated is what happened after Brown v. Board. A lot of times you kind of celebrate Brown v. Board and say, hey, we integrated schools. But actually, uh, you know, the way I see it, Brown v. Board was a, a trigger for white communities to cluster together and form their own communities away from black communities. So uh, so a lot of times desegregation plans would go through the courts and you kind of would have an idea that, you know, in three years, a desegregation plan is going to kick in and my kid's going to be bused to a black neighborhood. And so white families would preemptively start leaving, you know, something, something like the year before, it's approximately like 10% of white families uh, would leave that area so they wouldn't have to be bused to black neighborhoods or risk being bused to black neighborhoods. That's kind of, uh, to me, that's kind of astounding compared to like the two to three percent that they would expect uh, from kind of normal demographic shifts. So I, I have two thoughts on this. One is that I think it's interesting to think about what we're talking about here in terms of suburbanization, in terms of a lot of the healthcare conversations we have, because what we're talking about is a kind of a death spiral, 
right? You need for your school district to be healthy. You need a certain number of kids who are coming from, you know, upper socioeconomic classes and a certain number of kids coming from lower socioeconomic classes, ideally. And, you know, we can sometimes talk, I think, about busing and about white flight and a lot of intentionality goes into it, right? Like every family was saying to themselves, I am extremely racist. I do not want my son going to school with black children. We are going to uproot our entire life and move over here. That clearly happened, but it also wasn't what everybody did. But once it begins happening and the socioeconomic composition uh, and demographic composition of your school changes, all of a sudden there's more pressure on like the families who maybe didn't care that much at the beginning, but now the school is getting worse and now things don't feel as good and on and on and on down the line, it just creates this this spiral as people begin to leave. It just makes more sense for the next group to leave, which makes more sense for the next group to leave. And then you're just left with the people who don't have an, an option to exit. And it's just this very, it's very a very ugly problem, a problem that both has race, right, and genuine racism at its core. But once the cycle begins happening, people can make the, the uh, decision to leave for totally non-racial reasons that nobody really at that point knows how to stop. Well, it might not even be a decision to leave. It's like, let's say you're moving to Detroit from some other city. And right. then you're looking at like, well, where do That's I want to live point. in Detroit? And you're going, if you have the means to live in the place that has the better schools, you will probably choose that place. And if you don't, you end up in the place, um, you know, with the less good schools. And I think also layering onto that is the unique way we fund schools very much based on local property taxes. That is going to have really like a very snowballing effect, it feels like, where there are a lot of advantages, you know, race aside, all the factors like stack up towards going to the place that has the higher property values that that has built up in a way that is funding this possibly like great school system at the expense of another one. But that seems to be another key factor going on here is the very localized nature of school funding. One of our sponsors today is 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that provides you with DNA reports about where your DNA comes from, from around the world. So you can explore what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. Now through August 3rd, you could win a genetic adventure as 23andMe.com will choose one person each day for 23 days to travel around to countries based on your DNA. Will you be one of the 23 people to win a trip and travel to locations based on your DNA? Order your DNA kit for a chance to win a trip to explore your connection to the world and travel like never before. To enter, visit 23andMe.com. That's the number 23andme.com. No purchase necessary, open to legal U.S. residents 18 or older. Ends August 3rd, must complete the 23andMe service. Visit 23andMe.com slash rules for free entry. But so let me ask a question here, Alvin, from the perspective of, say, a libertarian listener of this show. What you're hearing here on some level is a story of unintended government consequences. You just said that Brown v. Board, despite the way it's venerated in American life, also was a trigger point at which white communities began actively physically segregating themselves. Um, it wasn't just done by law, so they did it in another way, a way that in some ways might have been harder to, to, to manage, uh, probably not overall, but certainly in some cases. Uh, you, we talk about the ways in which the way we fund school districts, all these different things come together and they have these 
a huge consequences. And somebody listening might say, you know, this shows that trying to do social engineering on where people live and who they live next to and what kinds of communities they're in is just not something the government is going to be able to do. Those preferences are too ingrained. Um, those communities are too complex. Uh, these issues are too core to people's ideas for their own families and for their children's future. And that the problem here is, you know, that the government keeps trying to do these overly clever ideas like busing, and it needs to stop. I mean, it's really interesting, the uh, the analog to healthcare. It, it's uh, a, a lot of people who think about this issue use the word social contract often. Then they, they talk about how communities think about social contracts and how communities think about a certain local area where social contracts apply to them with certain other communities and don't apply to them. And it seems, you know, it seems to me that uh, so school funding formulas usually give about not counting federal funding, about half of the funding comes from states and half the funding comes from local property taxes. And it creates this like ridiculous feedback loop where if you're able to secede from a, a poor school district, you can pour more money into your schools, you can increase your property values which then helps you pour even more money into your schools and so on and so forth. And it's, it's, uh, there's this incentive to, uh, to cluster away from larger communities, larger pools of people with whom you should be sharing resources and creating efficient systems. But instead, you have all these smaller, wealthier communities that are creating this vicious feedback loop and then kind of... Um, I, I kind of think of it like when you pour cold water in like bacon fat, you just get like these little pools. And it, it seems like that's what's happening here. So it seems like a lot of it comes to like the funding because actually like you brought up the healthcare, and it feels like you almost want like the individual mandate of like the education policy where and you already have that in a way where, you know, all kids are going to school, but there's no there's less cross subsidization uh, from, you know, one kid to another that the dollars often trail the student and follow them to whatever school they're attending. Um, there's actually this moment on Fox News the day after the healthcare. this will circle back in a moment, I promise, but the day after the healthcare bill failed in the Senate, there was this moment, I think it was on Fox and Friends, where one of the hosts said, well, I guess we're just stuck in this system where healthy people have to keep paying the bills of the sick. And I was like, Yup. That was like an that, amazing moment. <laughs> like that is, but, but it was, you know, it, it was actually revelatory to me to like understand like why you know this person opposes it and he seemed to genuinely oppose the idea that a healthy person would spend money that they would not get back that they would spend money on premiums and it would go to someone else and they would you know not benefit in the immediate term although likely benefit in the the long term from that structure and I think there's a similar sort of reticence possibly going on there. And, you know, understandably so. And this kind of, it reminds me of the um, deduction for mortgages in a way. When people make big decisions based on current policy, when they decide to buy that house, when they decide to live in that particular place, they get very, very invested in those policies. You know, they say, well, I, I bought a house because of this deduction. I stopped renting. I, I bought a house because it's in this school district. And that's a really hard forced to push back against, um, you know, to people making these decisions based on current policy and upending all of that policy. Um, even if it's for a goal, a lot of people might agree on, they might say, well, yes, except, you know, I made all these decisions about my life and like, how do I continue forward with big changes? So Alvin, what can we do? 
I mean, I think, you know, so on an individual level, what's really fascinating is it's just a whole bunch of uh, often middle-class families kind of making decisions for themselves. And there's this really fascinating white paper that just came out. Uh, it describes how in, and this is getting to what we can do, with school boards that have more democratic members tend to be able to fend off uh, segregation more or create more integration. So when you say and democratic, think, you're talking party-wise, not just... Party-wise, okay. yes, uh, party-wise. And they, you know, because school board members don't run our, on party platforms, they did this really clever thing that they looked up these people's uh, voter registration. Uh-oh. And so it's it's fascinating. But it seems like the, the model we have to keep in our head is if we don't do anything, uh, that bacon fat phenomenon will happen and you'll start seeing pooling that's much smaller and smaller. So that seems like one thing that, you know, getting involved in kind of a local uh, local level to proactively push against this is, I think, one key thing to do. The other is the school funding. I mean, what other resources do we, do we dole out from kind of a local property tax level? And there, there are very few. And it's, it's really interesting that schools are one of them. And I think as this data was based on EdBuild, which is an organization that kind of does schools research, and their CEO told me the primary problem is these backwards incentives that that are caused by how we fund schools. So I think that's that's an area we should kind of really think about. And the, and lastly, the the court decision we talked about uh, at the top of the show, it's Milliken v. Bradley. It allowed these borders to be completely weaponized by people who feel like they need to weaponize them to protect and hoard their kids' opportunity. And I think if that's in place, we really need to to visit the other two if Milliken B. Bradley is just going to stay there and allow borders to be kind of a stratifying factor. Mm -hmm. One thing I was curious about is whether this feels similar or different to gerrymandering and the drawing of borders where, you know, I read there's a Washington Post article you sent around Alvin that we can um, put in show notes where the argument is made that this is very different from gerrymandering. It's not subject to a lot of review. It happens, you know, with much less um, review from any sort of court system. The standards are different in the Supreme Court than they are. But, you know, I also look at gerrymandering and think like, well, that's not going super well. Like those lines are being drawn in ways that are creating different districts that are having political ramifications. But I'm curious, you know, if not to put you too much on the spot, but if you have any kind of thoughts if this is similar or different from the other ways we draw lines around ourselves to, you know, achieve certain goals. I mean, so, you know, I, I'm a visual thinker. So kind of the way I've been thinking about this is uh, gerrymandering exerts power kind of outward, whereas school secessions try to exert power inward and kind of away from others. And I think that's there's a really different phenomenon that happens there where with gerrymandering, you're kind of taking away power from others. Whereas with, with school secessions, it seems like it's more about uh, hoarding opportunity for yourself. Speaking of hoarding opportunity for yourself. Who's doing opportunity hoarding, Ezra? I'm not really sure. The Art of Shaving has your total routine covered. Whether shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, or body fragrance, they've got it all. The Art of Shaving's award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. 
Um, you know, there's a form element to the perfect shave that they've created to deliver smooth results every day. It starts with prepping your skin with their signature pre-shave oil, then create thick foamy lather with shaving cream applied with the shave brush, shave, and then replenish the moisture after with their shave balm. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service so you can subscribe and you don't really have to worry about them running out. They'll just show up at your doorstep. Our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code WEEDS. To get this offer, just go online to theartofshaving.com and use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Once again, that's theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert, step into any of their many retail locations located near you. We are talking after a very tumultuous week in the Trump White House. Uh, about a week ago, a week ago, a month ago, two and a half years ago, uh, Anthony Scaramucci, the new communications director who had not yet started as communications director for Donald Trump, uh, called Ryan Lizett, the New Yorker, and gave literally the most insane interview a communications director for a White House has ever given. Um, but among other things that happened in that interview, he said that Ryan's previous and then the chief of staff was a fucking paranoid schizophrenic and that if Ryan really wanted to leak something, he should leak that previous is going to be fired. So Ryan published this interview, uh, as you do. And then everybody thought, well, that that seems like something you shouldn't let your communications director say. But a couple days later, Ryan's previous was in fact fired. Uh, he was left on an airport tarmac. <laughs> this uh, so is the saddest detail. It wasn't just fired. It was humiliated. Uh, <laughs> this is happening, by the way, while Donald Trump is humiliating his attorney general and saying his attorney general is a huge disappointment who was never loyal to him in the first place. But Ryan's Priebus got fired just as Anthony Scaramucci uh, promised he would be. Uh, he was replaced by John Kelly, General John Kelly, who is the head of the Department of Homeland Security, well-respected guy inside the Trump administration but has some Trump-esque qualities in terms of how he views the press, in terms of how he views outside criticism. Uh, sort of famously, he once presented Trump with a ceremonial sword and said, this is for you to use on the press, uh, which was a joke, but you know, you don't make that joke unless you're coming from a particular point. And, and Kelly has been behind a lot of the Trump administration's more Trumpy efforts uh, in immigration. And he's been very, very, very aggressive in terms of arguing that there should not be criticism of this, that the men and women in uniform should be left alone to do the jobs they want to do. Uh, this is something that appeals to Trump, this idea that you know only he and his uniformed corps can keep the country safe and that they should be given a lot of leeway to do so. On the same day Trump appointed Kelly chief of staff, he also gave a speech to an assembled group of police officers in which he argued that, told them, hey, listen, when you're putting your suspects in your car, that thing you do where you put your hand on their head so they don't hit their head, stop doing that. Let them hit their head. Um, so just straightforwardly arguing for police brutality. Later, the police department where Trump spoke had to disavow Trump's comments and say that they take police brutality seriously. But Trump fired Priebus, put Kelly in charge. Then a couple days later, Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, as he is now called, uh, he was also fired. This is a sort of intense story. He had not yet officially started. So technically, he was fired before he started. But also the way he had been acting to get the job and to align himself with Trump had destroyed his personal life. And he had just divorced his wife a couple of days ago and like not been there for the birth of their child, is my understanding. So it's a kind of a sad story, but also he just didn't even get to start the job. He's gone. 
So now we have the Trump administration, no more Reince Priebus, no more Anthony Scaramucci, new chief of staff, John Kelly. No more Sean Spicer, which was only a few weeks ago, but feels like eons ago. Well, Sean ago. Spicer, he is not <laughs> he's literally left. He has he actually is. outlasted <laughs> Scaramucci. His like end date, I think, is possibly today or in a couple of days. It's not even 100% clear what he's what, what's going on with him. Um, so there are different ways to look at this. One way of looking at this is it's a pretty normal reboot where Reince Priebus was not well-liked or thought of as effective inside the administration. Scaramucci was clearly a lunatic. Um, and so they put Kelly, who is well-liked in the administration, in, in charge, and it's all fine. Another way, as our colleague Dara Lynn put it, is to think of it as a dark reboot. This is Trump, who has been foiled at Congress, who is unpopular, going back to the law and order like the hordes of immigrants are coming to kill you, sort of initial stuff that that made his campaign effective, uh, at least in the Republican primary. Kelly represents that part of Trump. He's been carrying out that part of his agenda. Um, Trump is giving those kinds of speeches again. That's a, a more worrying way to look at it. Another way of looking at it is it's just another gyration in a completely unstable White House and who the fuck knows what's going to happen. And John Kelly's life is about to get much worse because he's going to be trying to control a president who cannot be controlled. But- all in all, things don't look super stable in the Trump White House right now. Yeah, I don't, um, you know, the I, I kind of rule out the idea of just a normal transition, given that it's one that involves one senior White House staff member calling another one fucking paranoid schizophrenic. This does not feel like a normal transition of power. It is true that you often see in D.C., um, you know, these are tough jobs. These are high stress, working all the time, you know, really intense jobs. And I think they're... For every situation Trump is in, there's also a Trump tweet criticizing Obama for it. And I think he had some factoid, you know, during the Obama administration, the number of chiefs of staff he went through. I forget how many it was, but it was not it was nearly. three in three years three in, or something? Yeah. So, you know, these are jobs that you might not stay in for more than a year, just given the intensity of the work. Um, no chief of staff was no, <laughs> axed as quickly as previous, right? No. And I mean, Alvin had, uh, you know, brought up on Twitter yesterday that this was the shortest run we've ever seen um, for a communications director, just slightly shorter <laughs> than the guy who had to leave because it turned out he was involved in Hitler Youth. So <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the the competition is, is stiff here. So I, I don't think this is a normal transition. It feels like if you kind of like put it in the context of where the Trump administration is right now. You know, they just saw the one big legislative push flame out completely with no clear path forward. Like Trump is very agitated about this on Twitter, keeps talking about, you know, we're we're taping this Tuesday morning. We're waiting to see if he's going to blow up Obamacare today by ending these subsidy fundings, where it seems like a White House that is in many ways like stuck and trying to figure out where to go from there. And I don't know where they go. I think, you know, Dara's piece it certainly suggests a plausible theory that they go much darker and return to a lot of the things that their campaign roots. But it doesn't feel to me like the normal flux of people in and out of a West Wing situation. It feels much more chaotic, much more abnormal. I mean, what strikes me is this complete lack of continuity in Trump's decision making. I think we kind of knew this existed, but... It seems like he's making one decision at a time, and this, the last week, kind of uh, crystallizes it perfectly. Where the person he hires pushes out his chief of staff, and his chief of the chief of staff who was hired in his place pushes that person out. Like that is just ridiculous. And it's you know, I, it 
it kind of reminds me of a moment on The Apprentice where Trump uh, is talking all about loyalty and this dude trying to be loyal to his losing team offers to give up his immunity so that he could also be considered with his team to kind of be booted off the show. And Trump just, you know, without any continuity whatsoever, just goes, well, that was stupid. You're fired. And fires the guy who, like, he was praising attributes about. And it's just, you know, it's just kind of absurd in thinking about how if you work for him, you don't know how he's going to act. He's unpredictable. You don't know what exactly he wants. And how do you go independently about accomplishing these goals if you have this anxiety in the back of your head. I, I have no idea. I actually think it's useful to compare this to, to some of the Obama chief of staff moves because usually when there is a chief of staff transition, it is meant to respond to both external and internal circumstances. So Rahm Emanuel is Obama's original chief of staff and he leaves to run for mayor of Chicago. It's not clear if he would have left at the same time otherwise, but he leaves to run for mayor of Chicago. Now, the Emanuel period for Obama is extremely, extremely productive. They get a ton of stuff done um, very, very quickly. But it comes at the cost of Obama's popularity. It comes at the cost of any kind of postpartisan brand he once had. It comes at the cost of him becoming a very polarizing figure. And so after an interim period, they bring in Bill Daly. And Bill Daly was a, an establishment Washington guy with very good relationships on, on the right and the left, um, actually less so on the left, but the right and the, the center left maybe. Uh, he comes in and, and it's clear what the theory is. Bill Daly is going to come and he's going to be Obama's consigliere to try to make deals with John Boehner, to try to make deals with Mitch McConnell, to try to do a little bit of what Bill Clinton did and, and Bill Daly had worked for Clinton when Clinton faced a Republican Congress. Now, that didn't end up working out because for all kinds of reasons, this is not 1993. Bill Daly did not end up being very effective. I mean, it, it was not a good choice, but you could understand what the choice was. Now, Trump is facing a situation where his legislative agenda is completely stalled in Congress. He does not appear to have deep or decent relationships with Republican legislators. He does not appear to have just himself a clear agenda or clear ideology. There's just a lot of chaos in what they are trying to accomplish and why. Now, there's also an internal White House that is very fractious and has a lot of competing power centers. You could imagine Kelly, at least theoretically, to Trump as being an answer for the White House with a lot of internal competing power centers. Although it isn't 100% clear what you do about that because Trump generally likes to have competing power centers and he himself raises people up and kicks them down and he is uncontrollable and does not stay on message. So the idea that Kelly is going to come in and fix that situation, given that its cause is Trump, seems a little bit unlikely to me. But for the other problem, the problem where they are not getting very much done their major initiatives are stalled. There's no way, to, there's no clear path for healthcare reform to come back. There's no clear path for tax reform to do anything at all. Nobody's heard about infrastructure for a long time now. Kelly does not know anything about these issues. Kelly does not have a lot of relationships on the Hill, among Republicans, among Democrats. I'm sure he's got some. He was a, a legislative liaison um, at some point, I think for the Marines, if I'm not wrong. But he does not have a deep well of experience in how to deal with Congress and certainly not how to deal with Congress on domestic and economic policy. And so there's just a real chaotic question here. Like, what problems is Kelly going to solve? What theory is he going to bring to bear? And what does he even have opinions on? 
Um, because now you're in a place where it's like Ryan's previous. So one thing he really was, was Trump's conduit to the Republican Party, very close with Paul Ryan, very close with a lot of members of the Republican Party, with donors, with activist groups, with interest groups. He played a coordinating role here. Um, and he had the power to play that role. Chief of staff is an important job. Kelly doesn't know those people, doesn't really care about the things they care about, and doesn't want to play that role. So I think there's an argument that the White House is getting a better manager. And and for Kelly to to immediately defenestrate the mooch, I mean, that was a good start. But there are much deeper problems here. And it's like it, it's notable about the Trump administration that they are their internal staffing is so chaotic and fucked up that they don't even they don't even have the space right now to deal with their external problems. Well, and I think this kind of raises a question of if we're at a pivot point where you see some separation between the White House and the Republican Party. Because I think, you know, when Trump came into office, I remember taping episodes of The Weeds back in January where it felt like it was like an open question. Like, is he going to govern like a traditional Republican or is he just, you know, because he had all sorts of priorities that were out of step with the Republican Party during the um, during the primary and during the election. He kept saying, I'm not a normal Republican. I'm going to cover everybody. I'm going to have these different plans. And then he ver- fell very quickly in step and seemed to be just kind of governing as a traditional Republican president. And, you know, one thing I'm curious to watch going forward as we see Bryant's previous leave, as we see kind of this exodus of the folks who were the tether to the Republican Party is whether that remains to be the case. Uh, you know, another question, circling back to what Alvin was saying about, you know, working in the circumstances I don't see how you attract, like, good people to work in the White House going forward. Like, it's been made pretty clear you can be forced out at any time. It can be very embarrassing. Like, you know, it's that period on your resume you just don't really mention and hope no one asks about. Like, this 10-day period that's just this weird little gap on um, on your resume when you're searching for jobs. It just seems like a tough sell. And more than just the White House, but the cabinet too, to, you know, come into this job where your boss will criticize you publicly at any point, will fire you if he feels like, you know, that's the mood he's in that day, will make jokes in front of Boy Scouts about, you know, firing you if you don't get something done. Um, It's just a very unstable situation. And, you know, it's almost a bit of a snowball by making it so chaotic. I think it gets harder and harder to recruit good people who likely have many other job opportunities to say, like, this is the thing I want to spend some time doing. Yeah, I agree with that. And and here is maybe, if you wanted to look at it a different way, a different interpretation. Let's say that you are a corrupt, complicated administration, regime. Let's say you're a corrupt regime. One of the problems you have is figuring out how to get people in who are truly going to be loyal to you versus people who might not be loyal to you. And that's a problem because when people come and apply for jobs, they want power, they, they want the connections that will bring them money, so they might lie to you, right? Like this is a problem that regimes face all over, particularly authoritarian regimes. And one thing you can do is you can create a situation in which it is clear that only the truly, not just the truly loyal but those without any other options will thrive. So what's amazing about the way Trump has treated Sessions and Priebus is you have there two of his most important loyalists. Um, Priebus really, really, really made the RNC at a time when people wanted it to tilt against Trump, an ally of Trump's. 
Um, he used the RNC to build the campaign operation Trump had never bothered to build. On the night Trump won the election in his victory speech, he talked about how important Priebus was that he's a total superstar, and he actually asked Priebus to come up and say a couple words, which is like just speaking to how much he he, he was into him. Um, same thing, victory night speech. Like Sessions was the first major politician to endorse Trump. Trump called him up. He um, singled him out for special praise, said he was the first one to endorse me. And then subsequently, Trump has turned on both. I mean, he let Priebus be humiliated by Scaramucci, but for months now, I mean, he's been talking to people publicly, privately about his disappointments with his chief of staff. With Sessions, he's denied Sessions was ever even loyal to him in the first place, said like, oh, I just had big rallies in Alabama, so Sessions jumped on board. He had rallies a lot of places that were big, and Republican senators did not jump on board. And so one thing this is doing, I think— you know, you, you're already hearing that internal to the administration, people like Rex Tillerson are beginning to think about leaving because like you just, this is just not good. You don't want to be part of this goat rodeo. And if that's the case, right, if you begin to have an attrition of people who are independent enough to fear that they're going to come in under Trump's bad side, because like, I mean, my God, if previous concessions do, nobody's safe. Then the people who come next, all of a sudden, you're not going to have governor, like, solid governors and captains of industry coming in this administration. The only people you'll have are people like Scaramucci, who they have no other opportunity to get political power, no other opportunity to satisfy this kind of ambition. And one way to make sure you have people around you who truly will be loyal, who will do things that are possibly unethical, who will say anything you want them to say, no matter how dumb or wrong it is, is to only pick people who they exist based on your patronage, right? To have people who, if you are not behind them, there is nothing for them anymore. And so one way of looking at this, and I'm not saying it's done with this level of, of forethought, but one way of looking at it is that as much as this means he's not going to get the best people anymore, if he ever could, it does mean that he will get the most loyal and he will get the people who are willing to sacrifice most of themselves and take on the most risk to be near him because nobody else will apply. And all of a sudden, like, that's a very effective filtering mechanism for people who will uh, help protect you from investigation or will lie for you publicly. Now, the country shouldn't want that, but I think that's where we're going. Well, and it speaks to like the large role that the Trump family now plays in the Trump White House. Because right. I think like if you're going to fit that role, being related to the president um, puts you in in somewhat of a better standing to, to fit in that way. I mean, one really interesting aspect to this is he seems to want people who create a reality for him through their performance, through repeating his lies over and over again in a convincing manner. And which is why, you know, even when Scaramucci said these ridiculous things to Ryan Lizza, he, you know, Trump applauded them at first. And it's, and I think this is also why Sean Spicer didn't last uh, very long. So I think it's, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading on kind of what makes uh, Fox News, especially Fox and Friends, so effective. And one of them is, the, the performance is so important. And, you know, as we know, it's one of Trump's favorite shows. So the performance is an incredibly important part in kind of solidifying something that you want to be true. And so your audience kind of assumes that's the world in which they live. A lot of us have busy jobs. You have six meetings, 213 emails to respond to, so many books you said you would read one day, and you are also trying to live your life. Our sponsor today can help you majorly with one of those and give you back some time to help you with the rest. The world's most successful people have one thing in common, and it is not IQ. They are hungry for knowledge, they are seeking self-improvement, and they're reading and learning every chance they get. 
We are introducing our listeners to the Blinkist app. Over 2,000 of the best-selling nonfiction books transformed into powerful packs you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Since you're listening to this podcast, you probably love the idea of learning on the go with your smartphone. Imagine if you could just listen to the key insights of a nonfiction book in just 15 minutes. With Blinkist, now you can feast your mind on the key ideas from the top best-selling nonfiction books like Why Nations Fail, The Myth of a Strong Leader, and Crippled America, and Two Nations Indivisible. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash weeds right now to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash weeds to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. Blinkist.com slash weeds. All right, I think it's it's time to talk about weed again. Yeah, I was trying to think of a way, <laughs> but I, I had nothing. It's the weeds. We got a good response to the last um, segment on marijuana policy. This is, it's pretty straightforward title from NBER, the Taxation of Recreational Marijuana Evidence from Washington State. Um, it's from a trio of economists at the University of Oregon, um, Benjamin Hansen, Keaton Miller, and Carolyn Weber. And they look at this kind of unique um, experiment on what happens when taxations on legal marijuana changes, which is an experiment you can do more and more that you have more states um, legalizing marijuana. And they look at this moment where the Washington State Legislature, for reasons we don't need to get into, decided to change the way it taxes marijuana in the state. When it started legal marijuana, Washington would have a 25% gross receipts tax, which meant that at each time the marijuana changes hands, you have this 25% tax. This really um, encouraged a lot of integration in the marijuana industry. If you were you know, not switching hands, if you were doing, there were certain things that weren't allowed. You were not allowed to be the grower and the seller. There were certain forced separations, but you saw more integration. Um, and then you saw this switch to a 37% excise tax at retail that happened very suddenly and unexpectedly. So all of a sudden, all the taxes were at the point of purchase. And it actually, I was interested, I was the one who suggested this paper, and I was interested in it because it feels like a very clear, clean example of how taxes really do induce different behavior. So you see a few things happening. One is you see integration declining in the in the supply chain, where when there's less of a tax incentive to be integrated, then you you know you don't necessarily feel the need to do that. If the taxes are just being paid at the point of purchase, then you know there's no re- there's less of a reason to have an integrated supply chain, which you know the authors posit possibly so much worrisome, possibly better quality of marijuana if all the pieces are working together, less or more transfer stuff is happening in the new system. The other thing they do is they're able to test a little bit for um, elasticity for demand for marijuana, how much people respond when um, prices change. And one of the things they see is when you move to this sales tax, the price of a similar marijuana product goes up about 2.3%. And you don't see people stopping to buy marijuana, but they start buying lower quality products. They start, you know, responding, particularly after a few weeks. It seems like the response is not immediate, but within a few weeks, you see people substituting for less potent marijuana with less THC. And right now, marijuana taxation is all over the place. The taxes, they range from 4% in, I forget which state it is, but 4% in one state that's legal marijuana up to 37% in Washington, which is the highest tax rate. And I just thought this was in a burgeoning industry, an interesting look at how how much the t- 
tax policy on marijuana is influencing how the industry operates and what people are purchasing. So this tax to me seems like it was a wild success, actually. (laughs) I mean, when I talk to, to marijuana policy experts, the thing they are always afraid of is too much vertical integration. They are terrified that we are going to get the Budweiser, the Miller of marijuana, these huge conglomerates that are extremely good at creating all kinds of hyperpotent uh, products that are aimed at addicting people, right? I, I recognize like marijuana is not physically addictive, but people do end up psychologically addicted. You do have a lot of problem users. These kinds of beer companies and alcohol companies, they exist based on selling to their heaviest users and not the people who buy once or twice a month, but the people who are buying all the time. And there's just been a lot of fear that what you would get, even to some degree what you are getting, is just big, integrated, super powerful, um, and and very effective uh, conglomerates. And that the worries of being really effective at selling marijuana and, and trying to get more people onto it is actually not a social outcome we want. So it sounds like having a tax regime like this that, one, reduces the incentive for vertical integration, uh, and two is more transparent to the consumer. So the consumer feels a little bit more of the pinch and they substitute down to less potent products. That seems like a win-win. I mean, one of the one of the fascinating things here is because of this tax change, the consumers decided eventually, after uh, I think a few weeks, to buy less potent pot. Like that is, I don't know why that is just such a clear line between your state legislator decides, I think it was in like a second special session that they decided unexpectedly to, to pass this bill. And that tax change causes you to go into this dispensary and buy a, a slightly worse pot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's interesting that the authors essentially say, you know, at the end, they say, we're, we might be near the laugh, at the peak of the laugh curve. But let's be careful here that we're not giving people worse pot. I mean, I kind of like chuckled when I saw that. (laughs) Yeah, I was also kind of surprised at the judgment, like, this is worse pot, when I think that's actually a little bit debatable in terms of like what we are trying to achieve. I get for like the consumer, it is probably delivering less of a high. I will, if anyone, I am not a marijuana user. So if I describe any of this in weird ways, that is the explanation why. (laughs) But I get presumably it is delivering less of a high or whatever other people find enjoyable about marijuana that I've not found. But that they describe it like, oh, you know, it's worse weed. I mean, like, you could also see it from the other side as Ezra's describing it. Like, actually, you are producing the social reaction you would want of a less potent strand and attaching more cost to the most potent, most, I don't know, the best high, the the strands that are most enjoyable to Uh uh, speaking consume. of someone who's not a total nerd and can talk about <laughs> can talk about marijuana without sounding uh, like a, with, <laughs> you, you're so you're so I've cautious had, like, with all that. Two terrible experiences. That's but, that's what's up. But that's actually the point, right? Like that's why I think this isn't this isn't that bad. Marijuana's gotten much more potent over the past fifty years, and. It's for a lot of people not a better experience, right? I mean, if you are, I will is, endorse that finding. Right, this is where you get into this sort of regular high. This is where you get into heavy regular user uh, versus not that regular user. The much more potent marijuana is much better for the heavy regular user who has a lot of tolerance built up, who you know really knows how to navigate the aftermath. Uh, that that might be better for them. It's not better for the person who uses occasionally. And so, uh, again, like, 
what all the marijuana experts seem to say, and, and what Herman Lopez, our, our writer on this, will, will tell you too, is you want a regime that pushes away from big companies that get better and better and better at creating products aimed at the heaviest users and towards a regime that is, you know, works well for, for casual users and, and works for heavy users, but just is not about um, continuously showing growth so you can justify your share price. And so this this all seems great. I think it is funny that in the in the paper, like, oh, the, this pot is worse. I mean, we just legalized this stuff in Washington. Like, it, <laughs> like it's just that we we have we need to like spend some time right. thinking about what we're trying well, to get right out of now, this. Right now, the policy is all over the place. I just want to read this small paragraph from the paper where they say, right now, Colorado requires retail firms to grow eighty percent of the product they sell, which is like a huge push towards integration. Massachusetts has a tax rate of 3.75% compared to Washington's 37%. I think other states are somewhere in the middle. Um, But the policy is all over the place. And I think it speaks to somewhat of a confusion and figuring out like, what what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to get people like super potent marijuana at a good price? And like, that would be a good to some people, but like, to someone, I don't know, who like tries an edible once, has a really bad experience. I don't know who. Um, <laughs> maybe that's as a social negative. Um, it just speaks to a lot of lack of clarity of like what is the goal of taxation policy in marijuana? Like what do we want to do? And I think states are really just figuring it out right now and figuring it out. I think it's a little different from other things we tax, um, you know, where we're still trying. There's an, There's a kind of influence of science, like how do people interact with it, that there's so many factors going on that there is still a lot of confusion of what is trying to be achieved with marijuana tax policy. Well, I think we've all learned something important about Sarah today. (laughs) Uh, Everyone who listened to the end really, really got to learn some things. Um, (laughs) This has been another episode of The Weeds. Thank you to Alvin Chang for joining us today. Thank you, our producer, Peter Leonard. Um, we have a few announcements. We have so a few we will, announcements. Yes, we have some announcements. We are on summer vacation this Friday. There will not be a Friday weeds. Wow, wow. Um, so what you should do, however, there's a few things when you have that free hour of time on Friday one could do. You could listen to an episode of Worldly, which will be coming out on Thursday. It is a great podcast about foreign affairs. You could listen to an episode of I Think You're Interesting, hosted by our cultural critic Todd Vanderwerf, and totally get outside of the world of politics and policy. And you can join our Facebook group. Um, come hang out in it. It's a lot of fun. You can hang out there on Friday when we are not podcasting and that talk was, about That was fucking the fun. cold, Sarah. What? That was cold. <laughs> what else might you do if you were looking oh, for a podcast? Oh, the Ezra Klein show. <laughs> Shit, sorry. Cold. You should listen to the Ezra Klein show. Sorry. I th- there are I, all these I, other good <laughs> podcasts out there. I just assumed everyone was already listening because it's such a fantastic show. But who's on the Ezra Klein show this week? Yasha Bug talking about Trump and illiberalism and also uh, illiberalism in the country. Turns out we uh, voters and members of Congress don't really care if you launch an assault on sort of foundational issues of rule of law and how democratic processes work. But anyway, after you finish all these other podcasts Sarah <laughs> likes better, you can come check out the Ezra Klein show. Just listen to it first. It's great. All uh, right. Well, I think that is all from us, and we will see you next week. <laughs>